0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. How can we overcome our own biases and stop seeing the worst in others? Psychology professor Jennifer Eberhardt says we need to change the conditions that lead us to act on our biases. Bias is natural. We categorize people as a way to make sense of the world. It's a problem when biases become stereotypes and prejudices that impact our decision making.
1: The fact of, of bias seems to be everywhere, um, but it's also you know, something that can be mitigated. I mean, even though we might have a vulnerability to it or a
0: propensity you know, for it, um, it is something that we can manage. Today, we examine how bias is being managed in schools and workplaces. Aspen ideas To go brings you compelling talks from on stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Where do biases come from? Can we recognize them early in life so they don't become ingrained later on? One place to manage bias early is in the classroom. Experts like Jennifer Eberhardt say kids can become conscious of bias and then work to overcome it. Later in life, we may see efforts to stem bias in the workplace. Many companies have implemented diversity training, but does it work? Studies show people still make decisions in industries like finance based on the way someone looks. Jennifer Eberhardt, who teaches at Stanford, wrote the book, Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. She sits down with Adam Grant, a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. He's also the host of the Work Life Podcast. John Dickerson is a correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS News. He moderates the conversation. Here's Dickerson.
2: This evening we are gonna talk about um, bias, uh, both explicit and implicit, and we're gonna talk about dehumanization in schools and in the workforce. Uh, The first task this evening, I'm gonna ask Jennifer to define for us our terms here a little bit. um, Bias, particularly implicit bias, which is a word I know we've all heard a lot about and are hearing more and more about. Um, So I'm gonna ask Jennifer to do that and then we're gonna have a, a tiny audience exercise and then we'll be off and running. So how do we talk? How do we think about bias in terms of defining our terms?
1: Yeah. So um, implicit bias can be defined as the beliefs and the feelings that we have about social groups that can influence our decision making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. So it's distinct from, you know, explicit bias or what people sometimes call old-fashioned racism, where. Um, You know, you don't have to be a bad person, Uh, you don't have to be sort of motivated to do bad things, but um, you can uh, still be vulnerable to this implicit uh, bias. Um, So I I guess I'll leave it at that. Excellent, yes, and
2: we're gonna go uh, into this uh, a great deal more, but what's so great about what Jennifer and Adam do is that, you. the brain works and functions in this way sometimes completely out of our control, um, and implicit bias is, is very much a part of this and the way in which we think and, and come to conclusions without really thinking that have far-reaching consequences. And so as we're all having this conversation tonight, you might think about the instances in your own lives where your implicit biases have perhaps surfaced, um, and if you have a particularly compelling moment, that might be an interesting story to engage us all in when we uh, have question and answers. If you have a good question, you can ask that too. Um, But since I'm tasking the audience with that, um, Jennifer and Adam, do either of you or could each of you tell a story about either your own implicit biases or uh, one great story or example
3: of that in which you saw it? Adam, why don't you go first? Sure. So this is about a decade ago. I had a colleague come in to watch me teach a class because she was going to take on a new topic that I'd been covering for a long time. And afterward, I asked her for feedback. And she said, well, did you notice that the first seven hands that you called on were all male? And I said, no. I noticed that I called on the first seven hands that went up. And she said, well, don't you think that's a problem? And I said, oh, come on. We're social scientists. We deal in the world of, of very carefully controlled studies with large samples. And you know, this was one class, this was a few people, and I, I got extremely defensive. And a few weeks later, I had a follow-up conversation with her, and I said, you know, it seems to me that, whether, that was a, whether it was sort of random or whether it was a meaningful pattern, it's my responsibility as a professor to create an environment where the hands that go up are diverse, and I clearly haven't done that. And not only have I not done that, I haven't noticed that I haven't done that. And for me, that was the beginning of starting to think about how I could build a classroom and a workplace that's uh, that's more conscious of bias, but that also works to overcome it.
2: That's excellent. we're going to get to later some of the solutions and, and how they work and don't work. And Jennifer, your example?
1: So, yeah. So I'll take an example of a police officer who approached me uh, once after I delivered a, a training on implicit bias. And he uh, wanted to talk to me about um, something that happened to him that he hadn't you know, sort of talked about or thought about in a, in a long time. And so then he uh, started describing um, this situation where he was undercover uh, and he uh, looked ahead and saw that there was um, this person who uh, didn't look right to him. He said that the guy was similar to him. Uh, in his build, and then also his color, he was African American, um, and he had this probably the same body weight, that kind of thing. But this guy, um, you know, he his clothes were real ragged, and he, you know, his hair was uncombed, and he looked really disheveled, and all this. And the main thing was is that the officer thought the guy was armed and dangerous. He, he thought that something was wrong, something was off, and so he was like tracking him and trying to k- kind of um, follow uh, what he was doing. So as he uh, got closer to him, he was near this um, office building uh, that was, you know, with the glass uh, walls on the outside and so you can see the reflection and so forth. So uh, as he got closer to the office building, uh, he lost track of the guy, and so that caused him to panic And then he's looking around, and then he sees the guy inside the building. And then the guy was walking in the same direction and the same pace as as the officer. And so the officer started getting worried, and then, you know, at one point he lost him again, and then he saw him again. And so then he decides, um, when he sees him, you know, this time, that he's going to confront him. So he stops in his tracks um, and the officer turns and he sort of looks inside the building to confront this guy. That guy stops too. And he tells me, when I look at the guy, a shock went through me. He said, I was looking at my own eyes. He said he was looking at himself. He had been trailing himself. He was profiling himself the whole time. You know he had this image in mind of yeah. what you know a, a, a guy looks like, who's criminal, and the image was of him. He'd forgotten that he was undercover and you know how disheveled he looked and so forth. but that was his image yeah. of uh, it was his image. Sure. <laughs> right:
2: um, That's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. So Jennifer, let's, we're, we're going to talk about schooling and then in the workplace, um, how these implicit biases affect us. How we can perhaps get at them. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start at K, k through 12. Um, where do young, where do kids get, where do they, these come from, these biases, and is there a way to get at them early so that they don't become ingrained in our patterns of behavior?
1: Right. So um, so if we look at uh, K through 12 education, we know that there are huge racial disparities there, and both in terms of academic achievement and also in terms of uh, discipline. And so I um, actually conducted a study with a former graduate student, uh, Jason Aquanifa. Uh, We were interested in what the role of, of racial bias might be there. So we were interested uh, in particular in, in the teacher's uh, bias. Because when you see a disparity, it could be a disparity that is produced by bias or it could be a disparity that is uh, produced because uh, simply say maybe African-American students uh, misbehave more so than white students. Um, so we don't know if you just look at the disparity what the um, causal element is. And so, so that's what the study was about. So what we did is we um, had uh, we created this online study and we had um, teachers, practicing teachers as uh, study participants. And we got these teachers from all over the country and we asked them to uh, participate in the study and we showed them a picture of a middle school. We asked them to imagine teaching at this middle school and then we told them, you know, next uh, you read this office uh, referral record uh, for, for the student who misbehaved. And either the student's name was Greg, a stereotypically white name who had misbehaved, or the student's name was Darnell, a stereotypically black name, right? And so um, they read uh, about this, it was pretty benign misbehavior. The kid is getting up, getting tissues out of a tissue box and you know, uh, sort of not uh, listening to the teacher. And so we found whether it was Darnell or Greg, we didn't really see a race effect there in terms of how teachers said they would discipline a student. But then we told them, you know, this student, the same student misbehaves again. And this time he's sleeping in class and he's refusing to do work. There we see this huge race effect come online. All of a sudden, now the teachers are upset. Um, they're more upset with Darnell. Um, They feel like they're they're irritated with him. They feel like he's disruptive. They say they want to discipline him more. And uh, not only do they want to discipline him more than Greg, um, they feel like... um, you know, they, wanna, they, they can see him being disciplined uh, down the road. They can see him being suspended actually from school down the road. So you, you know, think about it, this benign behavior of getting tissues out of a tissue box or sleeping in class. It leads the teacher to already imagine um, this student um, being removed uh, from, from the school later on.
2: But they so, weren't imagining it instantaneously. In other words, it took like
1: that second it beat. It took the second, exactly, yeah. two strikes. But yeah. just with two strikes, you, you, you see that, you know, already they're seeing Darnell as a troublemaker. Right. And they don't make the same assessment um, of, of Greg. Of Greg. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, Adam, I was struck in the story you just told about your own teaching when you said you wanted, you needed to create an environment where it wasn't seven male hands who, uh, somebody just won the jackpot, um,
3: <laughs> so, uh, seven,
2: seven male hands raised. How, does
3: it, how, how do you create that environment? I think, well, a few things had to happen. Uh, the first one was I had to try to figure out why, you know, the hands that were going up were male. Was it that women were more concerned about looking like they didn't know what they were doing if they asked a question? Were they concerned about appearing too assertive or aggressive if they, you know, if they advanced some kind of opinion that people disagreed with? Um, there, were, there were a whole bunch of possible explanations, and so the first thing I did was I sat down with a group of students, and I said, hey, this pattern has been pointed out to me. I find it really troubling. What, what do you think is going on? And actually, the, the interesting response was that uh, a bunch of the students said, you know, this is, this is not me. This is actually, there's a group of male students who are really motivated to get high participation grades, and we've seen this in other classes, because they're really bad at tests. And so they've learned that they, they have to speak up a lot in order to compensate. And were they a cabal, or had they all independently come no, it to was, this? No, it was independent, so yeah. they, they had not been in a class together before, and so no. each of them individually was able to dominate previously, and now they had to compete with each other. Uh, but oh what, what I was able to do then, which was really simple having heard that, was to make it very clear that I do not score on quantity. I score on quality. And in fact, if you talk too much, you're undermining the opportunity for other people's voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. And so I might ding you if you speak up too many times. Uh-huh. And so I announced to the class, if you raise your hand and I call on you, please don't raise your hand again until everybody else who has their hand up has spoken. Oh. Um, and that, that made a huge difference and, and really started to, I think, create less of a disparity, both in which hands went up, but also then there was immediate role modeling where some of the more outgoing female students would raise their hands and jump in, and then others were able to follow that lead. Huh.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Jennifer, in, in the situation you talked to about in terms of disciplining, so what is the corrective there? What needs, what do those teachers who two strikes and you're out right. um, need to uh, do to change the way they think?
1: So so Jason, this is the, the former graduate student I, I work with, he, he went on to actually, you know, to look at that uh, issue, and he... Uh, Designed this intervention. It was an empathy intervention, and uh, basically, um, he he got teachers. Actually, this is from uh, five different school districts in California, and they were all math teachers. And um, he talked to the math teachers about uh, you know about you know discipline, like why um, you know what experience. Uh, Students might have had that would lead them to act out, to get them to think about that. Um, he also asked them to, um, you know, think about, um, you know, you know, a time when, or, or to basically read um, reports of of students who said they were disciplined, and you know, in the past, and how that affected them, and then to also think about for themselves as, as teachers when they discipline, you know, how they can discipline um, with a different mindset. So you're disciplining a student, um, not because you're trying to distance yourself or remove the student you know, fr- from others, but you're, you're trying to create a, a relationship with that student. You're, you're disciplining in a way with, with this uh, respect um, so that the student understands um, you know, that you, you care about them and you want them to, you know, to uh, feel comfortable in the classroom you want them to, you know, be able to, um, you know, to, to, to get a lot out of the instruction. So they found with this simple empathy a- intervention that they were able to um, cut the, the suspension rate in half. Wow. So,
2: yeah. Adam, you were talking about uh, empathy and, U- and UNC
3: and Duke um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, students. Yeah, so uh, a couple of colleagues, Allison Fregale and Karen Dalton, and I, were, were interested in how you motivate people to help members of the outgroup. Because um, if, if you look at who feels empathy for others and then how much they're willing to step up and show compassion or provide support, um, generally speaking, that's limited to however you define your in-group, right? It's the people who belong to your clubs, it's the people who went to your schools, it's the people who you define as, as sort of belonging to the same, uh, the same world that you're a part of. It's Would really that include to, political parties? Potentially, right? Yeah. So it's really hard to get people to cross those boundaries, of course. And uh, we, we decided a, one way to, f- to look at that that would be fun would be to look at inter-school rivalries. And so we, we started to dig into what are the, the most intense rivalries in, in the NCAA, um, and the, the most intense was Michigan-Ohio State. Um, coming from a Michigan family, I couldn't bring myself to try to motivate Michigan students to ever help a Buckeye, yeah. Yeah. and so <laughs> I felt like no, UNC-Duke think- was the next most appropriate. and so. Uh, we, we got UNC students and we designed an experiment where we asked them to help uh, either a UNC student or a Duke student who was trying to get a job, uh, who couldn't afford school, needed to, uh, to get a, a job to be able to pay for, for tuition, and the cover letter that he had written was awful. Um, it was actually not even clear that he could have gotten into college based on the, <laughs> the quality of the letter, uh, but we, we made it bad so that everyone would feel like they had something to contribute in, in improving it. And so everybody gets identical letters. The only thing that's varied is his school affiliation. And we found that, sure enough, you get much more help uh, if, you're, you know, if you're a UNC student from a fellow UNC student. Um, if the student is a Duke student, then people don't engage as much. They, they don't spend as much time on it. Uh, their suggestions are not as useful. But then we said, okay, what if we could get, what if we could get these UNC students to, to empathize with the Duke student? And so we, we just added a whole bunch of information about the level of need that this student had and why he was in a very difficult situation if he didn't get the job and uh, how important this was for him. And we found that once we were able to activate their empathy, the students at UNC actually spent more time helping the Duke student than the UNC student, even when they felt the same amount of empathy for both students. And we think what's going on there is, is kind of a classic cognitive dissonance story. Uh, there's some, some old evidence, which I love, which shows that some of you may have experienced this actually. The people that you like the most in your life are not the ones that you started out liking on day one. The people that you started out disliking and then had to work hard to overcome your initial biases toward them. Hmm. And eventually, you, you, you have to say, look, this person is amazing. Otherwise, why did I ever undo all the horrible things I thought about them? And so I don't, I don't always think that cultivating empathy for the out-group is easy, but I think we have some evidence that once you do it, it can actually really help you individuate that person and convince yourself that that's somebody, that's somebody worthy and diver, excuse me deserving of your help. And,
2: and how easy was it to make people leaving the schools aside, because if you went to the University of Virginia, you have a no empathy for either Duke or UNC, <laughs> but um, how easy was it turning the empathy switch?
3: It was pretty easy. So empathy, we activated empathy with with just a pretty simple statement of need, uh, which is, I think, the the easiest way to do it. I think, though, I do think that that sometimes the conversation focuses too much on empathy, Um, at least the way we strictly would define it in psychology. Empathy is supposed to be feeling other people's feelings. I don't think you have to feel other people's feelings to care about their feelings. Right. And so I'm not that worried about whether, you know, you're going to mirror somebody else's feelings, John. What I am worried about is whether you care about their emotional state and you want to take some action to to improve it.
2: Jennifer, how do you see? Let's let's move into the workplace a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So give us an example of the work you've seen in how implicit bias plays a role in the workplace. Um, Maybe the the investment uh, experiment you were talking about.
1: Yeah, so I um, collaborated actually with an investment team on uh, the study where we were interested in uh, looking at the potential for racial bias in the in- investment industry. Now, the investment industry um, is it's about 98.9% of white and male. Um, and so we were interested in sort of why that was and how do you Um, sort of break you know the the barrier uh, there so uh, what we did is we got um, asset allocators who you know responsible for um, sort of you know investing right and they use um, uh, venture capital teams to help them to manage uh, the the money that they're investing so we gave them one-page descriptions of these um, venture capital teams and there was a photograph of the uh, lead uh, a partner for for the team on there. And either um, they saw a photograph of a, of a black um, person who was the lead manager or a white person who was the lead manager. And so that was the only thing that differed. Um, and these were all like very highly qualified um, teams, right? So we were interested in what would happen there in terms of how uh, the asset allocators would evaluate them. And we found... Um, you know some evidence for bias there. They favored the the, the team that was the white led team. Um, so with the black led team, um, you know they're evaluating them more negatively on their track record, on their expertise, um, on their ability to execute on strategy, like all of these sort of you know primary markers uh, for that space. Even though you know, the, the, um, the one-pagers, these one-page descriptions were identical um, uh, but for uh, the race of, of the lead partner.
2: Did you see anything from, so what if it's a black-led team and the people doing the evaluation are all African-American? Would they, Do you think there would have been any beca- empathy or in-group um, uh, relationship that would have changed the evaluation?
1: Right. There might have been, but that is uh, in an alternative universe. Right? Yes. <laughs> Fair fair enough. So we didn't try that. Right. I guess what I'm wondering is
2: if the the in-group, out-group... if I'm evaluating somebody in the out group, whether my evaluations are more negative, yeah. is that the is that basically? Yeah. So there,
1: there's actually neural evidence of, of that. So um, in the neuroimaging study, for example, um, these are colleagues at, at Stanford again uh, did this study where they were um, interested in how hard you would have to work to um, you know to for your brain would have to work like the executive functioning right, right. Um, to process um, positive information versus negative information about an out group member, and they They found that it was easier to, um, you had to work less hard to process negative information about an out-group than than you do an in-group, but you get the flip for the in-group member. For an in-group member, it's really easy to process positive information, uh, you know, about that person, uh, harder to process negative information about that person.
2: So you can imagine this having, in politics right now, you have negative partisanship driving. Yeah. So in 2016, more people voted against the, the presidential candidate of the opposite party than for the candidate of their party.
3: Yeah. So it uh, feels like a political analog to what you're talking about. Jennifer, I'm curious, how is it that in the 21st century, we still have professionals making these kinds of judgments based on the appearance of someone who's doing an equally good job? Like, h- how do you explain this? Because I, yeah. I, I look at those data and... I know how robust those effects are. It's hard to believe them, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, especially in the investment space, there's, there's you know, it's almost like a completely closed uh, market, a closed space, and so... You know, when you're confronted with someone um, who's of a different race or a different gender, say, you, you don't you don't know what to do with that person. I mean, this is like you don't know how to evaluate the person. In fact, um, in this study, we found that um, you know, for for uh, white-led uh, venture capital teams, um, you. Their their competence was highly correlated with what you thought their um, future you know uh, earnings would be their future performance would be, uh, but for black led teams there there wasn't much of a correlation at all. It was almost like they didn't know what to do with um, you know these teams right. They they didn't know how to evaluate them. They hadn't confronted that before. They didn't know how to think about them. They were they kind of befuddled uh, by them in they, a way.
2: They sort of couldn't so, tell a story of success going forward with yeah. with characters that they didn't. See playing those roles of success.
1: Yeah, yep. but then you can see how it's you know, self-perpetuating. Sure. Right? Um, yeah. It's, yeah.
2: Um, Adam, you had mentioned something on the gender front with um, astronauts, which your question raises. So these are highly functioning people who've seen people of both <laughs> genders. I mean, I hope they're highly functioning.
1: Um, <laughs> uh,
2: but uh, who've seen people of both genders uh, do well
3: in their fields, and yet? Well, so I did, uh, I did a work-life episode. It was one of my favorites on how to trust people you don't like. And I uh, I've met a crew of astronauts that were in this really unusual situation where you know, if you think about post-Cold War, mm-hmm. you're going to go up to the space station as a, uh, a female American astronaut. And you have to go and fly with a Russian cosmonaut who, when you and your colleagues were in the military, you were trained to kill that person and vice versa. Um, and now you're supposed to live together in space and literally have your lives in each other's hands. The cosmonaut had not really worked with women before. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the way that the, the Russian space program had, had been organized. And so uh, he basically came in and, and didn't at all respect the American astronaut, Katie Coleman. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. It's like there's an American, there's a Russian, and then there's also for good measure an Italian that are going to go on the space station. Right. <laughs> the question is, what happens to them? And so I have a, I have a colleague, John Kennegator who uh, was hired by NASA after uh, running wilderness training for, for Knowles for a long time. Uh, to try to build a good training experience for astronauts, and so his job was to take these people and normally spend 10 days with them uh, in the Colorado or Utah wilderness and take them around. They're kind of in barren conditions. They don't have contact with any other humans, and it's supposed to simulate some of the challenges of space. He leads them deliberately in wrong directions. They have to figure out then how to navigate their way through. Um, he doesn't have that amount of time. He has a weekend with them. Uh, so he basically brings them together and he says, look, we're going we're gonna to cook meals together and we're going to try to get to know each other, and the Russian cosmonaut is not having it. Uh, and he just thinks it's a total waste of time. Uh, he's the most competent person in the room. Uh, women don't have any business flying, you know, flying to the space station, even though Katie's the only one in the group that's ever been to space before. And... <laughs> Uh, what, what John ends up doing is, is really clever. Uh, the first thing he does is he actually has them talk about what it was like to grow up in their unique cultural environment. And I think in multicultural groups, most of us avoid this, right? We think that information is going to drive us apart and yeah. make us feel different from each other. Yeah. And yet, I have this colleague, Rachel Arnett, who's done a bunch of studies showing that uh, when especially members of, of cultural or racial minority groups express what their unique background was. Uh, they actually get included more and they feel more part of the team because people start to individuate them and see them as a human being as opposed to just a member of a, a faceless group. And so in the, in the astronaut case, uh, people really open up about some of their tough moments. The cosmonaut talks about how important it is to him to be a role model for his son. And then you, know, you can start to relate to him a little bit more. Then the next thing they do is uh, they're asked to share their origin stories and talk about the moment that they decided they wanted to be an astronaut. And strangely, they never had this conversation before, and most astronauts don't even bother to talk about it. And if you think about the power of that story, there are only a few hundred people on Earth who share that experience, right. who can say, yes, when I was six years old, I, you know, I saw something happen in space, and I said, at that moment, I'm going to space, and I actually did it. And so they not only find a commonality there, they find an uncommon commonality. And for me, that bond that gets created, there's, there's a whole bunch of research on this showing that if you have a similarity with somebody else, that actually doesn't do a lot of good. So let's say, for example, you're in your hometown, and you meet somebody who's also from your hometown. Do you care about them? Do you feel any affinity? No. But if you met that same person from your hometown when you were traveling in a foreign country, you were instant best friends. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, it's like we were destined to be together. <laughs> <laughs> this, this person shares my, my, my fundamental identity. and so. I think that you want to look for those rare similarities, and that's, uh, I think that's what overcame a lot of the, the biases, and, and lo and behold, uh, the, the kicker in the story is, uh, at the end of training, they had to do some, some calculations, uh, I think related to the, the orbit of the Earth and trying to figure out how to approach the space station, and uh, the cosmonaut got them wrong, and Katie corrected them, and he said, from now on, you do the calculations. Yeah. <laughs> well.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Many of the conversations you hear in the podcast happen on the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Next summer, experience the festival in person. Passes for the 2020 Festival in Aspen, Colorado go on sale November 13th. Influential business leaders, scientists, artists, policymakers, tech innovators, and the like will plunge into topics that demand thoughtful consideration. Go to our website, aspenideas.org, and look for program tracks. These are the topics that will drive conversation and challenge you at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Mark your calendar for November 13th and purchase your pass before they run out. Registration opens online at aspenideas.org. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's John Dickerson.
2: So we've identified a number of different ways in which implicit bias um, uh, exists. Jennifer, how are we doing um, and where is it working well that, um, either, that organizations are addressing the issues with, with implicit bias training, mm-hmm. where it's actually working, and is it replicable or is it highly idiosyncratic to the you know, police force or the, or the corporation or that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there are lots of trainings, you know, bias trainings that are around. Um, like you said, I mean, they're everywhere. Um, so. Um- the, the issue uh, we have is that uh, those trainings haven't been systematically evaluated for the most part, so we don't actually know um, how well uh, they work. And I think part of the problem is is that we don't have agreed-upon metrics for evaluation, sort of what counts as, as working, and, and that might vary, right, from place to place. Um, the other thing I think is a real issue is that we don't have you know incentives always to know whether it's working or not I think um, the workplace or the school or the police department you know they want to show their communities or their constituents right that they're on the right side and and they're doing something you know on on this issue and you can't really show that if the training doesn't work like you don't get credit for it right Um, and then at the same time you have trainers who are coming in who you know it kind of messes with their bottom line if there's there's evidence that this uh, training isn't um, as effective uh, as as you're you know selling it to be so so we're kind of in this spot where we, we need the evaluation okay. but there you know the ascent incentives aren't always aligned so that we can um, actually get that evaluation. Right,
2: I want to ask you about police forces in a second, but Adam, in the in the corporate world, it seems to me they I mean. Certainly I see it. There's a real incentive to get this right for a variety of reasons, because you want talent to feel comfortable, you want a workplace environment that isn't awful. Um, and so it seems like the stakes are high. And so um, it, why isn't there a better method for doing this? Because even in big corporations that have a lot of incentive to get this right,
3: it's basically there's an on, some online training and it's, it's kind of weak. Yeah. So I think Jennifer's exactly right. I think there's a fear of finding out that it doesn't work. I think there's a lack of sophistication around designing good experiments and figuring yeah. out how to measure changes in attitudes and behaviors. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, a bunch of colleagues and I, Edward Chang and Katie Milkman and a series of others, and I just uh, published a paper this spring where we, we got a, a global professional services company to let us design and then test a randomized controlled experiment on unconscious bias training. and. There are very few studies that have tried to do this, let alone at scale with thousands of employees. And it turned out one of the reasons that the firm was willing to do it is if it worked, they wanted to be able to sell it to their clients. <laughs> and so they didn't have as much to lose if it wasn't effective because right. they weren't just yeah. doing it for internal purposes. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, we designed very short online training. It was one hour. Uh, we wanted people to be able to opt in you know, from anywhere on the globe. And we, we created three different kinds of training. One was just general psychological safety training that did not talk about bias at all. Um, and all the trainings were framed as being about inclusive leadership. Uh, there was a second training that was about general bias. Wait, what's in that category, the general psych- psychological safety? Basically just about how to, how to create a workplace where people feel like they're not going to be punished if they take risks, where they feel like they're going to be supported and valued, essentially. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about social groups at all. Okay. Um, so the second training is a general bias training where you get to learn about gender bias and racial bias and ageism as well. And then there's a third that was just gender bias uh, because there's, there's this big debate about whether you should just go deep on one category or right. whether you should try to cover all the bases. Right. And so then what we tried to do was we tried to measure attitudes and also behaviors. And uh, the results were very mixed. Uh, so I'm not very optimistic about brief online training as a way to cure bias, yeah. but here's what we found. Number one, um, we only improved the attitudes of people who started out pretty resistant, uh, which were primarily men from outside the United States, uh, who were the most negative about the idea of of promoting gender equality. Mm -hmm. Um, Second thing we found was uh, we were not able to influence their behaviors at all. So it seems like you need to go through a two-stage process where, in the first phase, you start to realize, hey, wait a minute, we are still systematically disadvantaging women. And then at some point, once you've fostered that belief, People are ready to move their behaviors, but they weren't ready all in one shot. And so I think we definitely need multiple doses of training. Um, Third, when we looked at behaviors, we we found it really challenging to measure what, what would you do differently if bias training worked? And the best measure we had was we got the firm to send out uh, supposedly unconnected to the study uh, a few weeks later, an invitation to get involved in mentoring uh, people who were underrepresented, uh, get involved in mentoring women, and then you had a chance to so, uh, sign up for one of those or to sign up to basically mentor what might be a white man. And so we were able to track whether you stepped up to try to support the careers of junior people who were, uh, who were in either belonging to a minority group or who are not like you. And we found that what we were able to move basically was the behavior of women in the U.S who are already the most supportive uh, of of trying to solve this problem. Um, But we didn't motivate them to provide more mentoring. We motivated them to seek it out from the people above them. So Uh. that when we we made them aware of of how severe biases is a problem, they said, huh, I gotta do something about this to overcome all these disadvantages. Uh, The one other thing we found, which was was a real surprise, was uh, across the board, the gender bias condition was more effective not only for promoting uh, various kinds of attitude and behavioral changes toward uh, benefiting women, but also toward benefiting racial minorities. And so the general bias training didn't do as much good, even for race, as the, the just gender-focused training. And I don't know why that is. I think we have two possible explanations right now. One is that the, the general condition is, is just too broad, and you don't get to go into enough depth on, you know, on how problematic bias is in order to really appreciate it. Uh, Whereas when we do a lot on gender, it's easy to then imagine, okay, here's how that would apply to other groups. Um, The other explanation, which is supported by some of our data, is uh, it was specifically the behavior of racial minorities that was often affected by the gender training. And so if I'm a racial minority, I go through gender bias training. I'm then more likely to mentor other racial minorities. And we think that part of what might be going on there is people say, oh, wow, this firm only cares about the problems that women face. And they're completely blind to all of the other challenges that other groups are facing. And so now I need to step up and compensate for that.
2: I want to get back to this idea of backfiring because it sounds like these unintended consequences that are a result. But Jennifer, I want to get your thoughts about policing because obviously that's a case in which the stakes are quite high. And implicit bias not only exists, but it is in the most uh, extreme circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about what, um, what you've noticed from your work in that context and also what's working? Um, or what's uniquely difficult in those situations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what works there is to not just um, sort of simply focus on the individual bias of the person, but to um, think about how the institution, or in this case, the police department, um, can put people in environments or in situations where they're either more likely to act on their biases or, or less likely to act on those biases. And I think uh, an example of this I could take is from you know, Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area, the police department there they used to have a foot pursuit policy and I think this policy is pretty similar across um, other departments where you know you're chasing someone you just follow that person wherever they go right and if you lose sight of the person you can keep you know trying to figure out where where the person is if the person runs into an enclosed space like a backyard you can follow them into that enclosed space Um, but uh, they changed their policy some years ago so that if you lost sight of the person if the person ran into this enclosed uh, space that you're not to follow that person in there right you're you're to step back um, you know create a perimeter um, and then you could call for backup but but the the thing is is that you want to um, actually um, create um, time and distance because um, when you don't have the time and distance, uh, you, you're going to have to go in you're going to have to make split second decisions about you know what's happening, and you know you, you, it's, it's going to be a fight right because right. If, if the person's already fleeing you you know, if they're in an enclosed space, it's gonna end up like, you know, in a fight, (laughs) you know, basically, and so what they found was um, when they changed the foot pursuit policy in that simple way, um, well, they used to have about eight officer-involved shootings uh, every single year, um, but with the change in the policy, uh, they've only had eight officer-involved shootings um, in the last five years. So huge difference, right, And, and the difference you know, you're looking, you know, the outcome there is like basically, um, you know, people being harmed, right? Sure, sure. And, and not only community members, they found that with the change in policy, they had a 70% reduction um, in officer-involved injuries, you know, around, wow. you know, that, that altercation. And so you just remove the, the, you know, the potential for the altercation for someone to, to be hurt. And, um, and and you're also removing the potential for bias, right? Because bias is, you know, we, we have the... We're vulnerable to bias, but we're not acting on that bias all the time. We're more likely to act on it when we have to make these split-second decisions. We're more likely to act on it when we feel uh, threatened or uh, when we feel fearful, uh, when there's a situation where it's ambiguous, um, you know, that kind of thing. So they also removed, um, you know, the or or at least decreased the possibility of bias going into the decision-making by removing the circumstances under which bias is most likely to get activated. Right. So, so I
3: I feel like we should probably help the audience figure out how biased they are. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure some of you have taken the, the implicit associations test, right, where you have to do the quick reaction time responses and you get to know whether you are more likely to associate good with white um, and back, bad with black or women with homemaker and men with career. Um, one of the things we were doing in our, our bias training was trying to figure out though, how to get people to actually admit their biases as opposed to just testing them implicitly. And um, we, one of the measures that, that you can do in the privacy of your own home is uh, it's called the bias blind spot. So this is the, the idea that not only are people subject to a whole bunch of biases, but they even believe that they're less biased than other people. Uh, which is like a meta-bias, the I'm not biased bias.
1: <laughs>
3: and so the way, the way that we used this was we surveyed people on relative to the general population, how biased do you think you are on a whole bunch of categories. So we went through gender and race and age um, and nationality. And then what we were interested in was were they more likely to admit that they were probably as biased, at least on some dimensions, as the average person. Um, And that was one of the ways that we knew people's attitudes improved. And so I think this is one of my favorite ways to test your friends, your family members, right, is just say, hey, relative to the average person, where do you think you stand on the following biases? And uh, the less less likely they are to admit it, the more biased they are. I'll have to. uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, save it for hope. I'll have to, yes, have a a
2: meditation on that. Um, So um, I want to get to... uh, so we're, I want to get to the idea of dehumanization uh, b- before opening it up for questions. But um, Jennifer, I want to talk to, to you about the backfiring. Um, some people say, uh, well, to get rid of implicit bias, we should just have a colorblind mm-hmm. uh, yeah, process or, or, or work towards a colorblind society. What, what's, uh, what's wrong with that?
1: Well, it backfires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what's wrong with it. Um, I, I actually I could share a quick story about um, about this. This is actually this. I, so I moved to um, California to Palo Alto uh, some years ago. And I was a new mother when I moved. I, I had a, a five-month-old, and, you know, I'm just, like, getting used to motherhood and all that. And I was um, in a Target store just, like, looking through, uh, you know, baby clothes, whatever. I had my uh, child in a car seat on, on, on the, uh, you know, just under, you know, at my feet, basically. And then I see a little girl uh, who comes around the corner and she's just so cute she's like smiling she has this little dress on a little bow in her hair and she has this like wispy blonde hair and she looks down and she sees my infant and she her eyes get really big and then she's she was like doing like this (laughs) like she was so excited and then she runs off right and tries to find her mother and she says mommy 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 and so clearly um, she had something to tell her mother, right? <laughs> so she, she she couldn't wait to tell her mother, and I could not wait for, to find out what it was, <laughs> it right? <made> it, it <laughs> so I'm listening, and then you know I hear her. She 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 sees her mother. She says, "Mommy, guess what?" She says, "A brown baby. There's a brown ba- there's a brown baby over there." And it was just so funny. Like she was just so excited about the idea that babies came in brown. Yeah. You know? <laughs> she, you know, she had never seen right. that before, and it was just exciting. And she wanted to let her mother know, yes. you know. So right. I just thought it was the cutest thing. And so I, uh, I tried to follow her voice and, and find, uh, you know, the little girl and her mother. And I was thinking this is going to be a big bonding, exp- you know, experience with the mom. And I'm a new mom, and like, oh, your daughter so cute. And I got to the woman and she was as red as a beet. Uh, she was so embarrassed and um, she couldn't even talk to me and she, you know, she uh, turned around and she c- left basically with her with her daughter and I just thought, wow, you know, and, and for me it was an example of, you know, you're not supposed to mention race and in fact there's research showing that by the um, age of 10 years old, um, children are already get the message that you're not supposed to ever uh, mention someone's race and, and, and so it's the colorblind message, right? Yeah. So so just don 't mention it and, and everything will be okay and, and if you don 't notice color you can 't be biased right. but But the research shows you know just the opposite right um, when you don 't notice color, you also don 't notice discrimination you actually don 't notice um, you know a, you know real uh, bias right. uh, so 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 by ignoring race, uh, you actually sort of lead people to have to um, sort of uh you know sort of deal with, with that on, on, on their own. You're not combating the inequality, you're you're silent on it. You're ignoring it.
3: Right. And I'm, so. I'm ignoring a part of your identity in, yeah. as another person.
1: Yep. Yeah. So Jennifer, um,
3: for future reference, we're supposed to take the cue in that situation from you, right? If you're okay, we're supposed to be okay. <laughs> well, is that right? Well,
1: I, I was clearly okay because I was like smiling and, and all of that. I'm thinking we're going to, you know, have this bonding moment. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think also people of color generally don't feel like um, being colorblind is... Um, is, is, is the way to um, sort of make everything okay. And so I didn't, I didn't mind her noticing the color. You know, you know, I looked down at, in fact, when she said brown baby, you know, I, I, I looked at my five-month-old and I was like, wow, You know, he he has brown hair, brown skin, and brown eyes. I had him dressed in these brown overalls. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, he is a brown man. (laughs) (laughs) That was cool, you know.
2: (laughs) Adam, in in, uh, the world I know better, there have been some studies that show that if you label something as fake news as a way to try to uh, cordon off the truly made-up stories, not just fake news, which is news you don't like, but actually things that are made up, that, that some people have started to see anything that's not labeled as fake news as having a kind of seal of approval, even if it may be dodgy and not very good. So that was an instance in which uh, well-meaning people tried to put, yeah. fix something by putting a label on it, and in fact, they created a secondary problem. Yeah. Is there a bias equivalent that uh, you've come across where you, when you introduce
3: people to, to bias, it actually makes them more biased? Yeah, so Michelle DeGuide led a paper that, uh, that I found really disconcerting. Uh, so she did a series of experiments where she was trying to test uh, bias training and she basically documented the pervasiveness of biases and you know how much harm they do and presented that to, to whole groups of employees and found that they were then less likely to check their own biases because she'd just gone and legitimized it and normalized it. And then the follow-up question was, okay, well, what do we do about that and how do we make sure that you know, you don't kind of accidentally license it and say, "You know what? Everybody's biased. We're all stuck with it. It's hard to change." So, what, are you what you can do you going to do? Yeah. yeah. So I, um, I had to confront this a little bit in my classroom. We had a, a situation where statistically there were half as many female leaders at Wharton as there should have been, and I'd been teaching for a couple of years and seen that on average, when you looked at both their objective performance and their ratings by their peers, um, on, on average women were better leaders than men. And so you know, there's, there's a real systematic uh, problem that, that's, that's going on there. And so a bunch of my colleagues said, well, what we have to do is we have to, we have to show that this is a problem. And we presented the data, and the same thing happened. It got worse.
4: Right.
3: And then um, what we learned from Michelle's research was uh, you just need to do one simple thing, which is along with describing the problem, you need to reject the problem. Right. and say, this is not okay, this is not acceptable. Right. And so the next year, what I did was, I took one section of my class, I had multiple sections, and um, I added the, the statement of disapproval. Yeah. And I said, look, here's the bias, and I do not ever want to see this happen again. And um, the, in the next six months, the, the gap, uh, the gender gap in leadership, vanished. You reminded them of the normative downside. Uh, that this yeah, was a- just said, this is not okay. Yeah, And it's oh. a really simple statement, and it seems to carry
2: a lot of weight. Wow. Jennifer, you went down to Charlottesville to look at the situation. Uh, So there, um, let's move into talking about dehumanization. Um, Because Charlottesville was um, obviously overt racism, nothing implicit about it, it, but... um,
1: Yeah, they had gone to start a race war, so... Right, (laughs) yes, (laughs) exactly. They were
2: were the opposite of implicit. It was absolutely explicit, but... Well, tell me about your experience in going down to Charlottesville, and then I'll ask you.
1: Well, I I went down there actually because, um, you know, at the time I was still writing uh, the book, uh, *Biased*, and. I um, wanted to understand how the Unite the Right uh, rally had affected the, the campus climate. You, you went to UVA, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. So I, I went to University of Virginia, and I just uh, talked to people there. I wanted to talk to people about um, you know how it affected them both inside and outside the, the, the classroom, and sort of what what you know sort of how people were grappling with yeah. with the issue and aftermath of that. So I had all these interviews lined up, like dozens of interviews, and I, I get there and. Um, I I get to the airport, and I I, I jump in the Uber to try to get to my uh, hotel, and the Uber driver asked me, so what brings you to town? And I thought, oh, you know, I was thinking, what should I say, right? (laughs) 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 Because I wasn't sure. This was just two months after the rally had happened, and people, you know, things were still pretty... um, uh, raw raw. Yeah. yeah that's a good word for very raw and so I wasn't sure what to say it was a white uh, uber driver and you know and and then I wasn't sure how he felt about you know what had happened um, you know there two months ago and and I wasn't sure who participated you know in that so so um, so I was nervous but then I, I thought um, you know I'm just going to sort of you know, answer the questions. So I said, "Hey, you know, I'm writing this book on, on, on racial bias. I'm here to talk to people here, you know, about what happened um, a couple months ago with the Unite the Right uh, rally," and then the driver started talking to me about. Um, you know, this uh, uh, black woman who he loved more than anyone else in the world, she was um, actually uh, a domestic that that worked in his home and kind of became a mother to him. Um, He had a sister who was handicapped and his mother uh, tended to her mostly and so you know, he was raised uh, uh, basically by um, an African American woman, and um, she had just, um, you know, died recently, and so he was a little choked up about it, and he was, you know, sharing all these stories, um, you know, with me about her, and so I, I you know, I, I, you know, was feeling pretty relaxed, you know, in the car, and and then the mood changed, and he stopped talking, and then he says, "I have bigotry in my veins," and I thought, "Whoa." you know yeah. and i i said well i said well when do you feel it <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and does it go away when you stop yeah, at know. red lights <laughs> and...
1: so he says he says i can feel it rising up and then he said i can feel it rising up when i feel outnumbered he said, um, So if I'm the only white person in a room, and of you know, mostly African Americans, I can feel it then. And he says, It's not just with African Americans, I lived in Florida and um, I felt it there too. If I was surrounded by Latinos, I would feel it there. And um, it was just really interesting because um, we. He sort of ended up having this conversation, and in a way, it was my own bias, right, about sort of being there and talking to him and not knowing, given his social category, who he was, that that I was hesitant about uh, uh, talking to him, but in in making the leap and talking to him you know, I I got something back that I hadn't anticipated, and it kind of framed uh, my whole visit there. I mean, he talked about, I mean, this whole idea about being outnumbered, and and that's what that rally was all about to to some extent, right? It was um, about, um, you know, feeling uh, that you're losing um, your place in society, um, and that you're uh, being replaced, you know, right. by other people, and that's what was fueling uh, a white, uh, you know, nationalism, really. Right. So, so it, it kind of um, set the the it framed the whole the whole visit in a way. Yeah. Wow.
2: Um, well, it's still pretty raw in Charlottesville, even yeah. uh, even so long after that. Um, the reason I uh, Charlottesville comes to mind for me is that you know, part of the, um, the white nationalist movement is, dehumanization is a part of that um, because they don't recognize the humanity and the groups that they are um, saying should be exterminated or replaced or, or otherwise removed. Yeah. Um, do you, and, and there is an argument people make that the culture for the moment, and uh, you all can do, tell me where you think this comes from, Um, is somehow allowing this, that there are uh, words and phrases and things used now in American life that dehumanize other groups. Do you see that, and where do you see it coming from?
1: Yeah, I mean, you see dehumanizing language, uh, you know, quite a bit now, and um, especially with, you know, immigration when we're talking about... you know, um, you know, people who are uh, migrating, you know, and wanting to um, come to the to the U.S. and uh, to cross the the border and to seek asylum and and so forth. Um, you know, language. You know, of sort of calling them, you know, animals, animals, and and criminals and rapists and and so forth. Um, but you know, dehumanization is something that's it's it's universal. Um, I don't want to. condone it at all just you know after you're making statements about uh, norms and so forth but it is something that we see um, across time and in all cultures and the 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 groups the specific groups that are dehumanized will change and 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 the way that they're dehumanized might uh, differ Mm -hmm. but the fact of dehumanization is something that is um, has been with us um, uh, for some time, and, it, and it's something that seems to be across the globe. Right.
2: All right, let's um, let's open this up to uh, questions. Thank you all for being here this evening. A fascinating program. I'm uh, deeply troubled by this idea that we don't have research to back up the effectiveness of this bias training. Yeah. You know, we have lots of examples, like the Cambridge Somerville study, uh, the Maple River over the Han River in. Uh, uh, Maple Bridge, Bridge of the Han River in South Korea and uh, the mindfulness training for industry youth in Chicago that show that we can actually create adverse outcomes. We can make things worse. Is there a risk that we're making things worse? Should we tap the brakes until we kind of figure out what is effective?
1: There, there yeah. I think there is that risk, actually. Um, I think I can... You know, as I go around and talk to people, I mean, you could feel the the backlash. People uh, feel like those trainings don't work, and that it can um, sort of make things more polarized, uh, say, in, in the workplace. And um, and then we don't we don't have evidence. Of, I mean, and there are lots of different trainings out there. I don't I don't know that like all of them, like none of them work, right? Um, but there are a whole lot of them out there, and you know, there, you know, and there are people who are consultants who are um, you know, and they're not researchers who are trying to figure out the sort of the inner workings of the human mind. Or I mean, they're, they're out there um, trying to um, sell a product that is in high demand. And, um, and I think that's part of why, um, you know, there, there's not the incentive there always to, um, you know, to figure out like when it works, how it works, um, what would make it work better, yeah. uh, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, yeah. To, just to build on that quickly, I think... I, I worry a lot about this in part because there was a, a Dobbin and Caleb analysis. Uh, it was, wasn't, wasn't experimental. It's an, an observational study of you know, companies that happen to do different things and then tracking what happens to representation of different groups in management roles. Uh, and what they find is that companies that had mandatory diversity training, uh, it actually did backfire on average. Uh, and so you see lower representation of women in senior management roles. You also see lower representation of racial minorities. Um, that does not seem to be the case if the training is voluntary. But it's sort of a double bind there because the right. people you most need to take the training don't opt into it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a problem. I think um, I know of two training programs that have good evidence behind them. Uh, one is Patty Devine's at uh, at Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, you probably know that work m- much better than I do. Uh, so jump in, but. The, um, the other is Joel Emerson at Paradigm uh, has, uh, has done a bunch of experiments with te- tech companies looking at some diversity training programs. And I think there's some encouraging news that if you structure them well right. and you make them actually interesting, right? psychologically interesting, then people sometimes do opt into them. It's one of the reasons we said, hey, we're doing inclusive leadership training as opposed to bias training. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we have a lot of work to do and I think it's pretty scary that uh, that the cart is so far ahead of the horse.
1: Yeah, I think one way to uh, make it more effective is to not just talk about what bias is and how it affects us, but to give people you know, tools uh, to combat it. And, and I think that makes the big difference. And with um, um, Trish Devine's research, um, actually that's what she's finding, is that when you leave people with, with strategies to uh, deal with with it, to mitigate it, they can go away and sort of practice those strategies and she's finding good effects from the trainings that, that, that she's done. All of those trainings are in the academic uh, context though, not in the um, sort of traditional workplace, not in police departments.
2: At the end here, over the first row.
4: Hi, thank you. This is a really fascinating conversation. Um, I, so my confession is I'm, I'm feeling a bit impatient. I, I I don't care that the training doesn't have great results. I'm s- like I'm sick of us just talking about training. How do we how do we codify it? How do we change policies? Yeah. Um you, Jennifer, you talked about the police force. That's a excuse me. That's a policy that I think wasn't necessarily rooted in bias. It's like, right. "Oh, you can you can you can like couch it as officer safety." Yeah. Um but what do you like what what suggestions or recommendations do you have? To actually take that next leap to codifying and building into policy, oh, what I would call good behavior yeah um, when the training is, is is good necessary but insufficient
1: yeah, yeah that 's a great question. I, mean, I feel like um, you know there's a way in which the, the trainees are both uh, too ambitious and not ambitious enough. Um, they're too ambitious in the sense that they're um, sort of trying to you know co- correct um, you know these associations that we might have uh, that we've practiced you know across a lifetime and say a couple hours um, but then they're not ambitious enough in that they're not trying to um, sort of tackle um, you know the bias that can uh, be uh, produced or or at least, you know, it, it sort of magnified or encouraged by the practices and policies uh, that exist um, in corporations because I think we have this sense that bias is just something in the head. It's just about the person and either the person is a bad person or a good person, but the, the, the bias is coming from our social environment and our institutions play a huge role in in determining what those environments are. And, and, and they have, you know, huge responsibility, I, I feel like, in, in trying to, um, help to, um, you know, have an environment where we're less likely to have that triggered and less likely to um, sort of be in in these situations where you, um, you know, where it can lead to sort of negative outcomes and can be harmful. So I, I feel like we need to do more there, and, and there's not a lot of focus on that, just because of how we think about bias in this very narrow way. But it, but it's it's something that's that actually can get produced by the the environment. There's some new research uh, now on this. You probably know about this work of just looking at um, sort of bias, you know, across the country and looking at regional bias. Um, so I mentioned that study about the discipline study. Mm-hmm. We started out uh, with the teachers. We were finding in that study and follow-ups studies actually that, um, you know, teachers who are in areas of the the country that have more of this um, implicit bias were most likely um, to show these race effects in in terms of who they chose to discipline and how.
3: Yeah, I think just to to add to the the point quickly, I think um, you go back to that Dobbin and Caleb analysis, one of the few things that did seem to increase representation of women and racial minorities in management was having a chief diversity officer appointed in the company. Now, we don't know whether, whether that's causal, right? Or whether more enlightened companies are more likely to take that step. Yeah. I think in this day and age, if you do not have somebody who's responsible for diversity reporting to the CEO, you're not taking this issue seriously.
2: In thinking about the roots of bias, uh, in addition to the social and uh, socialization and learned behaviors, is there an evolutionary basis on it? Is, it, is there something pre-wired in, there, in our brains? I know in the animal kingdom, yeah. <laughs> outsiders are shunned. Yeah. Is, and it, Given that answer, does that affect how you approach the solution?
1: Yeah. So researchers th- typically think so. I mean that. Um, I mean this is something bias is, is something that we see in you know all these different cultures. Again, you know th- you know the um, social groups uh, might change and the nature of the bias might change in terms of um, you know how people are stereotyped what you know what people believe about you know various groups and so forth. But the fact of, of bias seems to be. Um, Everywhere, um, but but it, it's it's also you know something that can be mitigated. I mean, even though we might have a vulnerability to it or a propensity you know for it, um, it is something that we can manage, um, and and it is something that um, it, you know if we're aware of the you know the situations under which it's activated, we can uh, shut it down uh, actually, um, and it's it's something that's really um, kind of an outgrowth for categorization, and so we you know um, you know we're categorizers as, as, as humans it's a way that we can um, you know, um, sort of make uh, sort of bring coherence uh, you know to, to the world and um, but as we form those categories and we categorize everything not just humans right but other animals and plants and cars and furniture and everything but when we're talking about humans um, once once we categorize but once we have these social groups and you put them in a category um, then um, it kind of opens the way for bias right because then you can have beliefs about the people who are in that category so that's what we call you know stereotypes or you can have attitudes about the people in that category That's what we call prejudice and together you know that's bias and that bias can then um, infect your decision-making, it can infect your behavior, but it doesn't need to. I mean, you, 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 you can have these associations that exist that are, th- are there but, um, but not activated, and, and you don't have to act on them. Um, we don't act on our biases all the time Uh, We we don't Um, and there's a there's a whole um, There are a lot of uh, studies uh, showing the conditions under which uh, we're most likely to act on bias And that's the kind of thing that we need to know Uh, That's the kind of thing that would be helpful um, to to teach in in some of these trainings. I think too
3: I think that's that's a hopeful part of the story and the other hopeful piece of it is there's a there's a classic argument from Marilyn Brewer who who showed that most prejudice is not driven by outgroup hate it's driven by in-group love and I think there's no question, right, that the outgroup hate that we do see is devastating. And it's a huge problem that needs to be solved. But a lot of the biases that we see are often just stemming from people having a slight level of comfort for the people that are similar to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we see that, we could say, OK, maybe we're not going far enough by just trying to reduce prejudice or fight bias. Um, there's some work on, on, um, on actually trying to cultivate outgroup love. And say you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not enough to just eliminate the animosity that you might feel towards some other group. Uh, Mm -hmm. You actually wanna feel the same level of affinity and community um, and care and concern for them as you would members of your own group. And love to see more of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's what happened in that investment study that I was talking about Mm -hmm. earlier. It was more, you know, you know, you're familiar with people in your own group. You're more comfortable with those people. You know those people. You 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 can have a sense of how to think about them and how to think about their performance and, and everything. Uh, but um, when you're faced with someone who's not like you, um, you you just don't you know you don't know what to what to do, and you're just less comfortable. Um, you know, the, you know, they're foreign to you, and so you don't quite know, um, you know, how to. how to to behave, and and how to think about them, even.
2: All right, our last question is here.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Um,
0: I just wanted to ask, do we have um, examples of situations where or other under conditions in which rates of bias are lowest? Do
1: we have examples of, like, when is there very little bias, and how can we replicate that? Mm-hmm. When, maybe when you're not making split second decisions, so when you have time and you're not sort of pressured for, for time. Um, you know when you're um, you know in situations where you have um, you know metrics that you can use to kind of monitor your own behavior across time you know that's really helpful um, to the extent that we don't we're, we're not aware like you weren't aware say in the, cl- in the classroom example that you gave at the very beginning of, of what was happening somebody points that out and then you start to notice it and then you start to notice it you know across time and in other classes and so you know so so the accountability I think is a big one in the way we get accountability oftentimes is through creating metrics that we can uh, monitor um, over time. You know, I, there, there are a lot of these, like even uh, emotional states can bring on bias. So if you're feeling threatened, if you're feeling like in Charlottesville, you know, if you're feeling fearful, um, if you're feeling stressed, um, even when you're fatigued, um, if you're cognitively depleted, you're more likely to act on bias uh, than, than if you're, you know, fresh and you're, you know, ready to go. So so there, there are a lot of, there's a long list of, of these um you know, variables that can really move around um, the probability that you're gonna, you know, uh, that bias is gonna get triggered and start to mess with um, your, your decisions and actions.
3: And, and I'll just say, for anybody who wants to dive further into any of this, uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's an amazing book that I highly recommend. So, backstory, um, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink and I uh, have a book club where every quarter we pick our two favorite new big idea books. And we recommend them, we interview the authors, we share the content. And uh, just yesterday, we were overjoyed to announce that Biased by Jennifer (laughs) (laughs)
4: Eberhardt
3: is one of our choices. Uh, Thank you. And I just, I cannot tell you all how powerful this book is. Um, you've heard all the amazing evidence that, or at least a taste of the amazing evidence that Jennifer brings to the table. You've also heard what a gifted storyteller she is, um, and that just leaps off the page. I think everybody on the planet needs to read this book, so please do. Yeah,
1: nice.
3: And with that, thank you very much, Jennifer. Thank
1: you, Matt.
0: Jennifer Eberhardt is a social psychologist at Stanford University. She's the author of Biased. Adam Grant is the author of Give and Take, Originals, and Option B, which he co-wrote with Sheryl Sandberg. He teaches at the Wharton School. Journalist John Dickerson is a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He previously anchored CBS This Morning and *Face the Nation. Their conversation was held in late June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.